Welcome to Study, Grow, Know, where we discuss theology, prophecy, and current political issues from a conservative biblical perspective. Here's your host, Dr. Fred DeRuvo. Hi, thank you for joining me. This is Dr. Fred. Uh, at the top of the transcript, there are a bunch of links for you if you care to peruse those for your research. If not, no worries. But today's topic is called False Guilt. And reading through the book of Numbers is, I think, in my opinion, a bit daunting. Now, it's not because it's difficult reading, but because as far as God is concerned, it clearly points out the fact that sin is exceedingly sinful to him. And that's one of the main points of Numbers. The entirety of the Mosaic Law is designed by God to point out the fact that humanity's sin is simply terrible. Now, for the Israelite, there was no forgiveness for sin that was intentionally committed. There was only forgiveness for unintentional sin. And even at that, this forgiveness, quote unquote, was not the wiping out of that sin either, but was more accurately a covering for sin, which is why the sacrifices needed to occur so often. It was a never-ending cycle for the Israelite of sin, offering, sin, offering, sin, and more offering. That's that's the way it went. Now, the rules in approaching God were very strict for Israel. If you've ever talked with an Orthodox Jew today, you might hear them say that following the Mosaic law is not that difficult. I've heard a number of them say that. And one thing that makes it, of course, easier today is the complete lack of the sacrificial system that's was that was used in the Old Testament, which is not active today. The other thing to consider is that most Jews do not consider what Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount, where he clearly goes to the root of the sin problem, our desires. So when the law says that it is against the law to have an adulterous affair with someone, the Orthodox Jew might rightly say, well, I've never done that. Therefore, I've not broken that part of the Mosaic law. And they could say the same thing for other aspects of the law, like stealing, lying, etc., so that they might conclude they are absolute keepers of the law. However, Jesus said, quote, but I say to you, that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart, unquote. That's Matthew 5, 28 from the Sermon on the Mount. Now, while this is not outwardly stated or obviously stated in the Mosaic Law, it is certainly implied and literally undergirds the entirety of the law. Therefore, Jesus was not going beyond the law, nor was he adding to it. He was, in essence, going to the heart of the problem. Lust is the driving force that causes a man to look at a woman and want to commit adultery with her. Whether he does or not is not the point as far as God is concerned. In God's eyes, the very fact that a man is thinking about a woman in an adulterous situation is considered sin by God. And Jesus states that the act of sin literally begins with our desires. And once we give attention to it there, it can quickly bloom into a physical act. And as James says, ultimately, it gives birth to death. Quote, then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin when it is full grown brings forth death. James 1 15. Now desire or lust conceives, right? Then it gives birth to sin, which brings death. That's what James is saying. It causes spiritual death 
immediately by breaking our fellowship with God. And if continually practiced, sin will also often cause physical death simply because of the way sin works against our body and mind. In the end, sin kills. It's interesting, when I was in uh, seminary, one of the New Testament professors said in a class one time, he said, quote, sin is brokenness. Well, when I first heard that, I thought, hmm, interesting. But then I realized that his statement deliberately obscured the truth about sin. Sin is not brokenness. Sin is really lawlessness. Sin creates brokenness because it destroys fellowship with our creator and creates a hard heart or a seared conscience if left to itself. But by stating, as the professor did, that sin is brokenness, it reduces the extremely offensive nature of sin in a person's mind, making it a bit softer. Well, the Bible is very clear that sin is emphatically wrong, and I, as a sinner, am fully responsible for all my sin. When I sin, I break off fellowship with God, siding with the enemy of my soul. So for too many people today, doing the right things outwardly leads them to believe that they're approved and accepted by God. You know, they're good people. Many people throughout society, regardless of their culture, language, their ideological outlook, they tend to believe that if they try to be good by doing good things, well, then they are good. But we know that God says something else, don't we? He says, there is none righteous, no, not one, Romans 3.10. Not one of us is truly good or righteous, but many believe that they are. Though I'm a Christian, having received salvation from God in Christ, I sometimes am fully ready to condemn myself. See, I go the other way because my sin at times seems so apparent and obvious to me. My mind seems to enjoy reliving episodes in the past that were sinful and are very cringeworthy to me today. The enemy loves to attack, accuse, and devour, reveling in that. Zechariah 3 brings this to the fore, quote, Then the angel showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, with Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. All right, so there's Joshua, the high priest of Israel at the time, standing before the angel of the Lord. Satan is also there standing at Joshua's right hand for one purpose, to accuse Joshua. This is Satan's main job where the elect are concerned, and Satan persists at this. But for each Christian, overcoming the temptation to maybe collapse under the weight of Satan's accusations can be overwhelming at times. And the truth is that all humans, all of us, are guilty before our holy God, and that the entire world lies under his judgment, Romans 3.19. That judgment is certainly on its way, but God draws people to himself by using guilt to help them see their need to repent so that they can what? They can and will exercise faith in Christ's finished work. That's what God wants. He doesn't use guilt to simply make people feel bad, but to motivate people to seek him so that through faith, they will receive 
life eternal. When people sin, they normally feel bad about it, unless, of course, they've been practicing sin for so long that their consciences are literally seared, unable to feel a sense of guilt or remorse anymore. And Satan also uses guilt against us. But of course, he does it incorrectly. Here's a quote from gotquestions.org on this whole problem. False guilt has at least two possible points of origin, ourselves and the devil. One of the names of the devil in scripture is the accuser, Revelation 12.10. It's a fitting name as he can and does accuse us to our minds and consciousness. Satan will bring to our mind the most horrible sins and cause us to focus on them rather than on the fact that God has forgiven us, unquote. Now, if we continue to look at and worry over past sins that God has truly forgiven, then we have a problem. We are focusing on our feelings about something we've done in the past. This is what creates the repeating problem of, oh, woe is me, or I'm no good, or God hates me, or he's angry with me. These are false notions that many of us have difficulty overcoming. We need a new outlook, and that outlook can only occur when we see the problem. Here's another quote from gotquestions.org. The cure for false guilt is the gospel. If you're a Christian, start by confessing any known sin. The promise of God in 1 John 1, 9 is for believers, which says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness, unquote. Now, remember that once a sin has been forgiven, it's forgiven for good. God separates our sin from us as far as the east is from the west, Psalm 103, 12. Also, they continue, focus on the grace of God. God's grace is free. It's based on Christ's work on our behalf, and it's greater than our sin, Romans 5.12. Meditate on Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Preach the gospel to yourself every day, spending time in passages such as Romans 3.19-26, especially verse 24, Psalm 103.8-13, Romans 4.7-8, Ephesians 1.3-11, and Romans 5.6-11. Meditate on the cross and all it means to you. Never think of your sin without also remembering the cross and the grace of God displayed in it. Unquote. That was from gotquestions.org. Now, this is often a difficult nut to crack for many Christians, and I include myself in that as well. It is much easier for me to condemn myself, second guess myself, or simply think that I'm doing something wrong and God is upset with me. The pastor of the church where we just became members likes to stress that God is not mad at us Christians. He doesn't hate us, and he's not angry at us, while he will certainly disapprove of some of the things we do, think, or say in order to help us press on in Christ, he doesn't close the door to us and wait until he's quote-unquote cooled off. His arms are always open, and you know what? I often forget this. Sometimes Satan will bring up a memory of some stupid deed or sin in my life to cause me to squirm. And the more I focus on it, the greater the squirming becomes. 
God doesn't want us to waste our time because those things are forgiven if we've confessed it to him and should be forgotten. Now, if it's something that I've never confessed to him before and something that I recently did, then I need to adopt an honest attitude of repentance. I need to confess it. But then once I repent of it, after confessing it to him, then I need to go on my way, understanding that God has truly forgiven me and doesn't remember that sin anymore. There's no need to continue to beat myself up over something that I cannot go back and change and God has forgiven. Now, in today's world, it seems fairly easy to go to one of two extremes. Either we tend to focus strongly on our past sins, even though God has forgiven them, or we don't recognize things in our past at all and that need to be confessed to him. The tragedy is that either situation can provoke wrong feelings within us, causing us to focus inordinately on those things instead of moving ahead in Christ. Paul tells us in Philippians 3:13, quote, "Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead." And it should encourage us all because Paul obviously dealt with the same things that we deal with. But of course, it seems like he dealt with them more successfully than some of us do, myself included. I think Paul is telling us not to be defeated by yesterday's failures. Recognize them, confess them, but do not allow them to come from the past into the present so that we become paralyzed with a fear that keeps us from pressing on in Christ Jesus. Well, I hope this has been beneficial to you. I do thank you for joining me. And until we meet again, I pray that God will open your eyes to show you how blessed you are in him. You've been listening to Study, Grow, Know with Dr. Fred DeRuvo. Please join us each week for new broadcasts that deal with theology, prophecy, and political issues from a biblical, conservative perspective.